2: Welcome in podcast listeners. I hope you guys are having a great start to your week. It is now Wednesday. Podcast is out. A lot of you are going to be cutting out of work on the fourth and the fifth. I'd encourage you to make sure that you go download my new wins and losses podcast. Dan Wetzel is the guest this week. If you're going on a long drive, if you got a long trip in front of you and you're looking for something that you will enjoy, trust me, Dan Wetzel will be great. You guys will enjoy it. There are six episodes up now, all of them pretty outstanding. That's the Wins and Losses podcast. Appreciate you guys downloading and listening to the Outkick the Coverage podcast. Happy early 4th of July. I will be on Dan Patrick's show, sitting in for him on July 4th and 5th because I'm out in Los Angeles. Instead, Jason Martin and Jeff Schwartz will be hosting, but we will have new shows for you on the 4th and the 5th. But this is the Wednesday edition of the podcast, diving into the U.S. women game, continuing to update you on free agency. My guys who aren't co-host with me on Lock It In, Todd Furman and his cousin Sal will be on this show. I hope you guys enjoy them. Dive into the podcast now and happy early 4th of July. Outkick the coverage with Clay Travis live every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. 3 to 6 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for Outkick the coverage at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every morning on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Now let's get this party started. You're listening to Fox Sports Radio. Live from the Geico Outkick studios. How about the U.S. women advancing to the World Cup final with a two to one win over England. It was pressure packed. It was exciting. It was an exhilarating game of soccer. Started with a lot of drama before the game even started uh, with Megan Rapinoe not playing. Now, this is pretty unbelievable, right? When you take a step back and think about how dominant Megan Rapinoe has been in this Women's World Cup w- uh, run, she scores two goals to advance the U.S. Uh, against France. She scores two penalty kicks uh, against Spain to advance the U.S. once they get to the knockout stage, and this has been a pretty incredible World Cup for her, including her feud with Donald Trump, all of the attention that that got when she said, I'm not going to the effing White House, and then to come out and perform as well as she did against France. This had been Megan Rapinoe's signature moment, an opportunity for her to take a bow on the national stage and then boom the international stage even and then boom suddenly she's not playing and uh the U.S. I thought was very fortunate to survive in this one as they were frankly fortunate to survive against Spain and fortunate to survive against France as dominant as the United States women's uh, team was in the group play when they came out and they boat raced Thailand and they took care of uh, all competition Sweden they took care of uh, of everybody that they were going up against in those early round games to advance into the knockout stage they haven't been that impressive once they've actually gotten into the uh, into this knockout round and to the US women's credit they managed to overcome the absence of Megan Rapino now now this is big um, the VAR the review of every single offsides to determine whether or not a goal is good or not. There's a difference between violating the rule and violating the spirit of the rule, right? This is an interesting detail. Like, do you go and break it down in an incredibly detailed fashion, or do you just look for egregious wrongs? I thought personally, I played soccer growing up, I understand the concept of offsides. I thought that the, uh, the the violation that took away an England goal based on a part of a body part being offsides, you look at that picture and it's almost entirely on sides. I think that that violated the spirit and the intent of the offsides rule because there's a difference between the letter of the law and the intent of the law. And I don't think the intent of soccer rules, and this is from somebody who plays, is to consider that to be offsides. I think offsides needs to be egregiously wrong. Uh, Somebody clearly offsides their body, clearly past the final defender in order for there to be a violation there. By the way, you're talking and listening to a guy who believes in general that offsides is far too commonplace. I've long thought that offsides in soccer and by the way this can go multiple directions right the u.s got popped for an offsides violation uh that i thought was very questionable in their game that they won 2-1 against france that would have put them up 3-0 i don't think that offsides makes a lot of sense in soccer in general i think it's a hard rule to apply and i i just don't think it makes sense i in my ideal world i think you could eliminate offsides in soccer, this is my personal opinion, and continue to play the game and not have the game of soccer devalued hardly at all. Uh, because I think what you would see is potentially a few more goals, but you would take a lot of the onus off of officiating to be experts in the way that they call the game. And uh, this VAR, again, to me, there's a difference between instant replay review to right egregious wrongs and to catch things that actually aren't that big of a deal and maybe would have been called differently in years past. Let me give you an example from another sport. If you watched the – I believe it was the title game where this happened. Virginia uh, is in the title game, and they're playing against Texas Tech. And if you watch that game late in the game, there was a moment where the Texas Tech player had made a steal and a UVA player ran up on him and knocked the ball out of bounds. And virtually all of basketball, everybody who's ever played pickup basketball, everybody who's ever refed a basketball game, anybody who's ever played the sport, the way we typically would call that situation is if you've got the offensive player with the ball and a defensive player runs up and knocks the ball out of his hand, the way that we would almost always call that is out of bounds on the defensive player. Now, you think about that. You play a pickup basketball game, somebody is running up on you, and the ball gets knocked out of your hand by a defender and you don't touch it again, right? It's not like it goes off your knee. It's not like it goes off your your foot, none of that. Like it just gets knocked out of your hand. We would almost always call that as out of bounds on the defensive player, the offensive player would get the ball back to inbound. Well, if you remember that game, what happened? Because they have gone to instant replay review in super HD 4K developed television, they zoomed in on that to the nth degree, and what did they uncover? They discovered that that was actually, in their opinion, off the Texas Tech player. So the rule may be right when you zoom it in on the nth degree on that, but I think most people out there listening to me right now know exactly what I'm talking about. If you were refing that game in your backyard, if you were playing 3-on-3, 4-on-4, 5-on-5, you would always call that out on the defensive player. And what happened in that replay review was there was like a tiny pinprick of a finger that you might see in super exaggerated slow motion that it actually went off the offensive player last. Right. And I think that probably happens pretty regularly, but the way the game is officiated, we almost always, and the way you would self-officiate, you would almost always call that out. Again, I'm saying not if it hits your knee or not if it hits your foot or not if it goes off another body part, but just you are dribbling and somebody runs up behind you and knocks the ball out of bounds and that's the, the me- method by which it's propelled out of bounds. I'm analogizing that right now with the way that the situation developed with the U.S. women because to me, that was not an offsides uh, position that should have been called. That English goal should have sta- stood. It was it should have been tied up 2-2. Now, American goalkeeping. Later on, arguably, you got a borderline makeup call, maybe, a borderline call to award a penalty kick, and the U.S. stepped up and saved that penalty kick, and it was A fantastic save because about 80% of the time on penalty kicks, you end up scoring. So the U.S. women survive and advance, which is the goal of the U.S. Women's World Cup Tournament, just like it's the goal of the NCAA Tournament to tie all these things together. Officiating is never going to be perfect, and the U.S. women found a way to get it done. So now the question becomes, what's going to happen as they advance and play what will be a massively watched game uh, against either the Netherlands or Sweden? on Sunday afternoon in the primetime uh, afternoon viewing hours. Not a lot of other television events going on. We actually, interestingly, were filming Lock It In when this game ended. So it was hard to watch every last uh, minute and intricate uh, moment of play. But these have been pretty exhilarating games. And to me, the biggest challenge that uh, that is out there for the U.S. women is figuring out what exactly is going to happen with Megan Rapinoe and also the difficulty by which it is going to be required for them to play at a high level uh, while they are trying to figure out what's going on with Rapinoe. Credit to the U.S. women's team, by the way. All of the media over in France, all the people following uh, this story, and for Megan Rapinoe's injury to never get out and for everybody to immediately be surprised when the starting lineups come out and Megan Rapinoe is not in the mix. Now, for Megan Rapinoe, this is a big hit, right? Because she had been so good in the in the uh, World Cup so far. She had been the best player, I think, for the U.S. women. And in addition to the fact that she'd been the best player, she had also gotten into it with Donald Trump. But the way that this situation works is, as the games develop and continue to play out, the audiences get bigger and bigger. So Megan Rapinoe is going to be a story on Sunday, and she's already told Jenny Taft that she hopes she's going to play on Sunday. But I don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be because I find it hard to believe that if she truly has a hamstring injury, she's going to somehow be able to turn it around and play at a high level in uh, in this scenario uh, with the U.S. needing to come back and turn around relatively quickly on Sunday and play a major game. So I think, unfortunately for Megan Rapino she's probably out. This probably ends her U.S. women's national team career. And it's an anticlimactic way to go out. Now, the U.S. women are deep. Kristen Press came in and scored a goal. Uh, Alex Morgan got a goal, but Kristen Press comes off the bench, gets that first goal on a header. The U.S. women, uh, one of their players confidently said, we don't just have the best team in the world, we have the second best team in the world. And that may well be true, but that depth is certainly going to be tested if Megan Rapinoe is not able to go on Sunday uh, either. But in the meantime, I think there are a lot of people out there that are interested to see how the U.S. women do. They would be even more interested, I talked about this on the show, if Megan Rapinoe hadn't decided to get all political. But the U.S. women win, and uh, we'll see how they do now coming up against either the Netherlands or Sweden. And remember, the U.S. already beat Sweden in the uh, in the group stage round, so the U.S. is pretty substantially better than Sweden. In fact, they're already minus 450 favorites. The to get this thing done uh, in the World Cup and close the door on anybody else. So, uh, that story is uh, ongoing. We continue to monitor. Kawhi Watch uh, is ongoing in the city of Los Angeles, where I am this week. By the way, let me give you a heads up. Jason Martin and Jeff Schwartz are going to be hosting this program on uh, Thursday and Friday, July 4th and 5th, if you're working or if you're going to be on the road and you want to be able to listen. They will be doing a live show. Those are the guys who usually fill in for me. On Thursday and Friday, I will actually be hosting the Dan Patrick Show out here in Los Angeles. So Thursday, I will be uh, with Doug Gottlieb, and Friday, I will be with Jason McIntyre. Both of those guys, part of the Fox Sports Radio family as well. So that should be a lot of fun. Special July Fourth Day edition again. Since I'm out in the West Coast, I'll be doing morning radio for Dan Patrick while he's out, and uh, then I'll be doing it with Doug Gottlieb on Thursday and with Jason McIntyre on Friday. So we'll see what ends up exactly happening with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Watch continues. But up next, we're going to talk with my guy, Todd Furman. Uh, He is a good buddy of mine. He's on Lock It In with me. And I feel like there's probably some interest and demand and desire to already start talking football, even though we are in officially almost the dog days of summer. What do we think about that? Also, what's the latest on the NBA uh, odds market with all the free agent movings? We'll discuss all that with Todd Furman. That is coming up next. I appreciate you guys hanging out with me.
0: dot com slash sports tire rack dot com the way tire buying should be
2: welcome back geico outkick studios this is always a confident show especially when we're joined by Todd Furman, one of my Lock It In co-hosts, who we have been with all year long. He's been on the show a decent amount talking gambling. But first, uh, are you surprised that we made it through year one and that they've picked up year two of the show?
3: I mean, I think there were a lot of people out there expectation-wise that really believed, hey, if we got through the end of the NFL regular season and postseason, that was going to be a step in the right direction. The fact we've been able to fill airtime since the culmination of the NCAA tournament with talk of soccer, your beloved baseball, and every other sport under the sun, a step in the right direction. But never in my wildest dreams that I'd imagine we'd have as much fun and success in just the first season to lock it in.
2: So we finish off the season uh, with the shows this week, and then we come back on Monday. And barring some major upsets, you're going to be the winner of the season. You're going to have made the most money. What do you think your prize is? Do you have any clue?
3: I have none, but knowing uh, how this show has gone, I'm it's I get the feeling it's gonna be like let's make a deal and there's gonna be ant barnyard animals or something ridiculous. I can't imagine there's anything trophy-wise, you know, gold bullion or anything useful that I'm gonna be able to take home with me, but maybe we're gonna find a way to surprise. But we can peel back the curtain a little bit since there's emails out there, so you guys have an idea what's gonna to happen to me if I win it. Cousin Sal and I have an idea of what's going to happen to you if you finish in last, barring some unforeseen comeback. And you and I both know what prize awaits Cousin Sal for finishing in the middle. So very curious to see how the show uh, wraps up on Monday in anticipation of the All-Star break.
2: All right. So uh, it's amazing, really, when you think about it. Let's go a step back. And we just talked about the U.S. women to start the show and everything that happened in their game against England. But when you think about the degree to which sports gambling has become now a part of the overall way that fans talk about sports in general, could you have seen how quickly this was going to happen from May of last year, which is a little over a year ago, when the United States Supreme Court says individual states have the right to decide whether or not their citizens can gamble on sports, to by September our show launches – And now Fox is coming out with a new app. I mean, there are all these different companies. New Jersey has now passed... Nevada in terms of the amount of wagering that's going to go on could you have foreseen how rapidly things were going to change going back to just May
3: we knew that there was always an appetite for sports betting out there people were going to go about finding their vices and we had made the comparison a number of times that sports gambling in 2015 or so was akin to prohibition back in the 1920s that even if it wasn't officially legal we knew people were partaking in it outside the state of Nevada and it was just a matter of time now that I think this many states would mobilize as quickly as they have that I think New Jersey would surpass Nevada as far as betting handle for one month during the month of May in just year one. No, I'm really surprised by that. Now, I think New Jersey, though, is a different example. They've done things the right way in terms of fostering that competition. They've put out a lot of incentives to get new bettors away from some of those other channels and putting them into the legal markets. But there's also a lot of speculation that some of those operators are operating right now at razor-thin margins. So I'm very curious to see how other states try and do things Uh, for any of these opportunities to be successful. You need a full mobile product. You have to make it easy for people to get their money in. You have to make it easy for people to pull their money out. But I think it does fundamentally change the way people view sports. And in my opinion, it's a great lens and an idea Because gone are the days of us talking about upsets because a ranked team loses on the road when they're a a four-and-a-half to five-point underdog or something along those lines. So I think we're headed in the right direction. But again, and it goes without saying, you hope everyone that partakes in sports gambling in subcapacity does so in a responsible fashion.
2: We're talking to Todd Furman. All right, I feel and I know that there is a huge obsession for football to be back, right? And I think you tweeted out over the weekend, six more weeks until uh, Florida and Miami it in college football, and then the camps will be open in another few weeks now that we're into July. When you kind of look at getting ready for the NFL and college football season, what do you do to be ready for week one? When do you start your prep? I mean, my
3: prep's already been
2: underway. Like, so, and what does your prep consist of?
3: So, I mean, a lot of people rely on the annuals that are out there. There are plenty of great publications and great websites to provide content. Uh, But for me, it's looking at how some of these teams finish, trying to figure out which of their contributors are going to be back. What do the defections look like, whether it's the transfer portal or taking the next step to the NFL, assessing some of those depth charts, going through spring practice reports. There's so much that goes into just being able to place a bet on that opening Saturday, whether it is the 24th for Florida against Miami or it's the full opening weekend or even the NFL preseason that you're going to want to go through and try and leave no stone unturned to be successful. I will put the time in. I know you will not study college football till about 36 <laughs> well, hours well, before, hold on. and that will show up in the handicapping results.
2: I am obsessed with college football and the NFL, so I will pay a lot of attention. I won't be doing It really showed. It really showed
3: in your picks. It really showed in your I, picks the amount of time, effort, and obsession that you have. I have
2: been positive for six or seven years if you tally up all my picks in college football. So I think I know college football decently, uh, but I, I, I don't necessarily spend a ton of time in the off season. Now, I pay attention to all the stories, but it's not like I'm looking at depth charts and everything else. How many hours – I mean, I'm curious on this. How many hours do you think by the time the NFL kicks off – will you have spent preparing for the start of the NFL season? That's not to say that you're done because obviously you continue to adjust once the season is ongoing, but how many hours would you estimate for the NFL, for instance?
3: I mean, you figure even when the season's over, you start casually through February and March. You're always reading articles, so say five to ten hours during the spring a week, and you continue to ratchet that up there. When you get towards, for me, the middle of June when I really put my foot down on the gas and hit the accelerator to try and do it, it's splitting time between college and pro football, so between 30 to 40 hours a a week during the summer months to get yourself up to speed. And that's not just figuring out, hey, who's going to cover week one. It's looking at win totals. It's looking at props. It's looking at futures, trying to figure out which teams are properly valued, which teams are undervalued, which teams are overvalued. But the one challenge in college football for me that's a little bit different than the NFL is you'll hear a lot of guys, myself included, they will put together power numbers, and they'll stay married to those numbers all season long. The NFL, I trust that over the course of the 16-week regular season, barring injuries, things get themselves sorted out. But in college football, you can watch one, two, three games tops and go, you know what? I was completely wrong on my assessment of this particular team. I do need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and start from ground zero to reassess what I've seen, not necessarily what my expectations were, you know, in early July.
4: Do you
2: think and believe that Alabama should be a prohibitive favorite over Clemson in college football?
3: I do not. But I, the one thing for me when or I or vice
2: versa, right? So no, are they head and shoulders above everybody? There, else There's in no doubt. Football.
3: If you were to give anybody Alabama and Clemson against the entire field, you have team, to take them. Yeah, the only team I think that's close talent-wise is Georgia. Georgia. Georgia, I have some skepticism about Ohio State and the coaching change. I don't think it's just a seamless transition there. Uh, But you look everywhere on the roster for Alabama and Clemson. They check the box with an NFL-caliber quarterback. Clemson's offense is absolutely ridiculous with the receivers they'll bring back. You have a home run hitter and Travis Etienne in the backfield that's good for 8 to 9 yards a carry. And while Clemson has to retool a little bit defensively, I mean Brent Venables isn't going through a full rebuild. I mean they have the completely stocked the cupboard and Clemson is the modern day Alabama. They've used that template to just kind of instead of rebuilding, it's a reload process. And those two teams for me, a cut above Clemson will be a double-digit favorite in every one of their games, and you can make the case that they'll be more than a 14-point favorite in all 12 regular season games. That's mind-boggling for a team in a power conference. All right,
2: what about the NFL? How do you assess the NFL right now? Should the Patriots be the favorite over everybody else, or how would you look at the NFL going into, uh, you know, what, training camps are a couple weeks away now, by and large?
3: I mean, public perception plays a big role. The Patriots are going to go out there and defend a Lombardi trophy. I have some real reservations about this team. We know they typically don't start well in September. But you can't discourage anybody from that wants to lock up their money and bet the Patriots in the futures market because barring an injury to Tom Brady, you know they're going to be atop their division you know that they're going to be in the thick of things and they're going to be playing their best football when it matters most. But you look around the rest of the league, and I think Philadelphia is a team that I'd have my eye on. I love what they did this offseason. But again, questions about Carson Wentz. Can he play a full 16 games because they won't have the luxury of Nick Foles? I'm not as bullish on the Rams as some people are. You know, The Super Bowl hangover, in my opinion, very real. We'll see if they can get back to that level of dominance. And when you look through the AFC and try and figure out who can knock off New England, I'm not buying Cleveland. I think Why are you
2: not buying Cleveland?
3: I think this is a team that's either going to play well above expectations and exceed our wildest dreams, or it's going to be a fiery car crash. If this team starts slow, you have so many egos and so many players that are going to create a volatile tinderbox that let's see if Baker Mayfield can be that bona fide leader. Can Freddie Kitchens handle all of the pressure that's going to be around this roster? And uh, I think the jury's still out. You know, don't sleep on the Pittsburgh Steelers there. And when we look in the uh, AFC South, I think this will be one of the most competitive divisions in football, whether you want to make a case for the Colts who have the most complete roster, Jacksonville getting back, Uh, or Tennessee being fine with Marcus Mariota, can he stay healthy out there? I think it's a very interesting question. And you look at the AFC West, in my opinion, so much of that will hinge on Tyreek Hill. If he's out for four games, it changes the Chiefs' offense, a new defensive scheme. I think the Chargers are the most talented team roster-wise, top to bottom. And Anthony Lynn proved an awful lot to me last season at the as their boss.
2: So Tyreek Hill, how much difference does he make if he's not on the field for the Kansas City Chiefs?
3: For me, I would make a one-and-a-half point adjustment. on Which pure, is huge
2: for somebody for who's a not receiver. a quarterback.
3: Yep, for pure power number alone, and that's as much scheme as anything else, because you look at what Tyreek Hill does to take the lid off of a defense, it opens up everything underneath. For a guy like Travis Kelsey to operate in the middle of the field, their receiving core, it's a massive drop-off, and so much of what Kansas City does in the ground game is predicated on pre-snap reads, Uh, A lot of motion and being able to send Tyreek Hill down the field, taking a couple of safeties attention away from the run game. So for me, I change it one and a half points there. But I think it just locker room wise, you have to figure out what this team is going to be. Patrick Mahomes is an elite talent. I'd be foolish to say anything else, but let's see more film out there down potentially his top weapon. It may not be all roses and rainbows for the Chiefs this season.
2: What about Kyler Murray? How do you assess his value, assuming that Cliff Kingsbury and the Arizona Cardinals are building the entire team around him? Do you think that that fundamentally alters the way you look at the Cardinals? How do you project for a rookie quarterback who you've never seen in the NFL before that you know – is going to have the team built around him and is going to be taking the reins from the minute they start.
3: I think this is an element of surprise that Cliff Kingsbury can take advantage of early. Their week one game against Detroit, I wouldn't put too much stock in it. Even if Kingsbury were to set up a game plan and see Kyler Murray throw for 300 yards in his NFL debut, this is going to be a lot different for him than what we've grown accustomed to in Big 12 where defense is optional. The loss of Patrick Peterson... Uh, from a substance standpoint on the defensive side, really changes things. Uh, but I'll say one thing. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury has made his bet. He's been given the quarterback there. We're talking about a guy who didn't even have a career 500 record as head coach at Texas Tech. I'm not so sure I'm signing off on this Arizona exper- experiment. But, hey, we've seen quarterbacks and transcendent talent take the game to the next level. Even if Kyler's successful, there's just not a whole lot supporting cast-wise when you look at some of the skill position talent in David Johnson, Christian Kirk, and Larry Fitzgerald, who I think is approaching 40 at this point.
2: We're talking to uh, Todd Furman. He's one of my Lock It In uh, co-hosts. You can watch us uh, for the rest of this week, 3.30 Central, 4.30 Eastern, 2.30 Mountain, one thirty Pacific. We're on July 4th and July 5th. How crazy is that that we're on the
3: 4th? No holidays. I mean, uh, there's no rest for us in this business. Is there sporting events to be bet? Uh, plenty of show content for us. I'm sure you'll have plenty of NASCAR and golf for everyone to wet their whistle over the weekend.
2: Uh, so contextualized for people out there who may not know you spend all the time gambling and, uh, talking about gambling, how big, and how much bigger is football gambling than any other sport?
3: It's not even close. Now I know a lot of people look at the numbers and they'll go, well, look, baseball represents such a percentage of what you see as far as gross gaming revenue in Nevada. Well, keep in mind, every one of those teams plays 162 games. You're talking about 15 games a day during the doldrums of summer. Uh, but we talk about the uh, example of building a church for Easter Sunday. The NFL is why you build a church and why these sports books are out there. I mean, it's not even close. A Tuesday night game in the sunbelt. Mac will do more betting handle than what you'll typically see on a World Series game unless we're talking about the Yankees the Red Sox the Cubs People wait all year to try and bet football. And even the Hall of Fame game, that first Sunday in August, I mean, that's going to do gangbuster numbers. And there's always a chance when you look at the teams playing in that game that you can do more betting handle on that particular game than you will the entire baseball slate. So if you didn't have football betting out there, whether it's college or pro, and pro dwarfs college, at least in most markets, I mean, you may as well not even be building these sportsbooks. All
2: right, so we talked a lot of football, and I know there's a huge uh, interest and craving for football talk. But I wanna, I'd want be remiss if I didn't circle back around on the NBA, given free agency. Let's get to Kawhi in a second, but let's take Kawhi off the table. Any major moves in free agency in your mind that have fundamentally altered the trajectory of the NBA outside of Kawhi? Anything that you saw from a signing perspective that you thought, oh, I love what this team did. It really increases their championship odds. How would you assess
3: I think Utah uh, has to be considered one of the big winners uh, out there for what they did. Not necessarily just in free agency but the Mike Connolly trade. Ricky Rubio never really got the feeling he was going to be their point guard of the future. So I think when you could put Connolly in the backcourt with Donovan Mitchell, it goes a long way. You go out and you get Bogdanovich from Indiana. He is almost the perfect fit to sit outside the perimeter and chuck three. So I love what the Jazz have done. Now does it make them one of the favorites in the West? I'm not going to quite go that far. And I'm always a big believer in Brad Stevens and the Celtics. I feel that Kyrie wasn't a good fit culturally and so they had to try and take a step back you let Kyrie go or Kyrie wanted to leave however you want to spin that you get Kemba Walker who doesn't have to be a me first type scorer It gives an opportunity guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward to do more the Enos Cantor signing a little bit underrated to give him a two-year deal for 10 million bucks so I think the Celtics are a team you're going to want to watch in the east and when you look at Philadelphia I'm very curious to see how the 76ers perform. Jimmy Butler felt at points he was the heart and soul. J.J. Redick was the perimeter shooter. Can Josh Richardson be that guy and give them some shooting? Uh, You look at Ben Simmons and that deal that's on the table for him. Philadelphia, for me, still a couple below Boston. So if I had to pick a team in the East right now, I'm saying the Celtics offer the most compelling value.
2: All right. Now, Kawhi, how much impact does he have for the Raptors, for the Clippers, and for the Lakers, just from a future odds maker perspective? Cool. Let's, I'll start with the Raptors. Kawhi stays with the Raptors. They're 8-1 to one right now. What do they become for championship odds? That
3: number, yeah, that number goes down. You're talking about them 4.5 or 5-1, to one, maybe a shade lower, depending on an odds maker opinion. He is the straw that stirs the drink for Toronto. A lot of their supporting cast still intact. Now, I will say it's a lot different dynamic when you go from being the hunter to the hunted, but it clearly makes Toronto very formidable and one of the teams to beat in these two He conference.
2: doesn't go to Toronto. He leaves. Toronto goes from 8-1 to one to what?
3: Their number cascades all the way down. I would say that they're probably in that 25-30 to range, maybe even a bigger long shot than that because there is no star power left on that roster. And we can say what we want about the Pascal Siakams of the world, but that team isn't built... Outside of getting to the playoffs, not to make a deep run in the Eastern Conference. All
2: right, the Clippers right now sitting at 16 to 1. I think the expectation is Kawhi's not going there with that number. What would it become if Kawhi went to the Clippers in your mind? I
3: think you'll see some books overreact and come down in that five to six range. For me, I would put them in that eight to one price range. You love the the coaching caliber that you have of Doc Rivers, the roster, you bring Patrick Beverly back into the fold. Uh, you see some of the other guys coming off of the bench and you know what they're capable of doing in a Lou Williams and a Montrez Harrell. So I think that roster is intriguing, but I don't think it's enough to make them one of the teams to beat in the Western Conference. And of course, I feel this segue with the Lakers and what the impact is going to be there. You're talking about the Lakers going from that 2-1, two, two to 3-1 to one range. Almost getting into Warriors territory where I can see a scenario where odds makers are going to make them right around minus $1.20, meaning you have to put up $1.20 just to make a dollar coming back, and you can have every other team in the field at roughly even money.
2: So do you think overall from a gambling perspective, do you think more people gamble with Kawhi at the Lakers or if Kawhi goes elsewhere? In other words, is uncertainty in the gambling market where a lot of teams could win the title good for the handle or is having a prohibitive favorite good for the handle.
3: You know what? It's kind of splitting hairs. I think you're going to find you know, professional bettors trying to identify value elsewhere when Kawhi goes to the Lakers, but the recreational bettor is going to go, well, why am I going to bet anybody else but the Lakers when I think it's a formality that they're going to win this thing? And this probably had to be one of the biggest future holds uh, for books because Toronto wasn't a public team. No one really thought they were going to get there with all the talk about the Bucks, the Celtics earlier and the 76ers. This will be somewhere in the spot where people may be deterred from betting the Lakers, uh, but your futures handle wouldn't be anything special with building a super team at Staples.
2: When we come back, we'll talk more NBA. We'll talk the U.S. women as well. He's Todd Furman. You can follow him on Twitter at Todd Furman. I am Clay Travis. This is Outkick the Coverage on Fox Sports Radio.
0: Dot com slash sports tirerackcom the way tire buying should be.
2: Welcome back, Geico Outkick Studios. I'm out in LA. Um, I am going to be guest hosting the Dan Patrick Show with Doug Gottlieb tomorrow, July 4th. So, an early Happy Fourth of July to you guys. Appreciate all of you spending your uh, Wednesday morning with us here on Outkick. Friday, I'll also be sitting in for Dan Patrick. I'll be with Jason McIntyre. Should be a lot of fun. And I'm hopeful that we're going to get some kind of uh, conclusion to what has been the Kawhi Leonard sweepstakes. Kawhi is the only player that is still sitting out that you just heard Todd Furman talking about that is actually potentially going to change the overall landscape of the NBA. And to me, We talked about this yesterday. I imagine we're going to continue to talk about it going forward. To me, this is an utterly, really interesting story to follow because the question is, to what extent, if at all, is Kawhi Leonard actually making a decision right now versus – What if he's doing an unbelievable Machiavellian move and keeping the Lakers from actually being able to go out and sign the free agents that they would otherwise sign? Now, I don't know exactly what's taking place, and I think anybody who claims to know what Kawhi Leonard is thinking is crazy, but I just want you to follow along with my thought process on what Kawhi Leonard's decision actually is coming down to. All right, here it is on its most basic level. If Kawhi is going to make the decision to join the Lakers. What he has to be comfortable with is being the center of attention. For most of his NBA career, Kawhi Leonard, both at San Antonio and in Toronto, has been all about basketball, not all about the attention that comes from playing basketball. He isn't active on social media. He isn't on Instagram. He isn't on Twitter. He isn't kind of emoting at every moment every possible emotion that he feels. And he's just really good at basketball. Maybe the best basketball player in the world. So from a pure basketball perspective, the best team that Kawhi Leonard can join is the Lakers. There's zero doubt about that. He, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James would be the three best players to ever take the court for an NBA team in the history of the league. I don't think anybody can argue otherwise. But LeBron brings a circus with him. He brings the carnival tent. All of the attention. What's going on with the head coach? What does LeBron feel right now? Is LeBron happy? What about all the other players that are on the team? Those are things that for most of Kawhi Leonard's history in the NBA, with the possible exception of his injury status down in San Antonio, almost none of it has been discussed. Almost none of it has been contemplated in any way. So what I wonder more than anything else as Kawhi Leonard tries to make his decision is this. What is Kawhi actually thinking If it's just about basketball, just entirely about basketball, the Lakers is the right choice. But you have to understand that if you join the Lakers, it's never just about basketball. There's going to be a lot of other moving parts associated with that decision. And if that decision boils down to just about basketball, then he goes to the Lakers. If it's basketball plus the surrounding environment, I don't see any way that Kawhi can go join the Lakers. So... I think if he wants to have a normal Kawhi Leonard-like existence, he should stay in Toronto, where he's going to be north of the border, most of the attention is not going to come his way, he's got a really talented defending champion Toronto Raptor team, and from a pure Machiavellian perspective, by waiting this long to allow the Lakers to know what decision he's going to make, there's the possibility that Kawhi has sabotaged the Laker free agency. Because there aren't that many good players left that the Lakers can sign with their $32 million in cap space if he decides to walk from Toronto. There's a lot of different people putting pressure on him, a lot of excitement that's going on in Toronto right now. But ultimately, Kawhi Leonard would have his space in Toronto in a way he would not in L.A. Now, you can argue, well, he should go to L.A., but he should play for the Clippers instead of the Lakers. But at this point, I think that ship has sailed. Because if you're going to move to L.A., It doesn't make any sense at all for Kawhi to play for the less talented, less title-worthy team like the Clippers would be. Now, I know you can like Doc Rivers. I know you can like Steve Ballmer. I know you can like the direction that the Clipper franchise is going, but ultimately they don't have LeBron James. They don't have Anthony Davis. They're not close to a championship. They're a playoff team. They're just not close to a championship caliber team. And if you're already going to make the move to LA, I don't understand why you would go with the inferior brand inside of Los Angeles. But this already free agency process seems like everything that Kawhi Leonard claims to hate. The amount of time that it's taking, all of the attention that's foisted upon him, and he still hasn't made a decision. Put simply, I just don't get it. I don't get it at all. It seems like very anti-Kawhi so far, which is why I ultimately think he should return to Toronto and end up there as opposed to, uh, to going to play for the Lakers. But this thing is going to be massive. You just heard Todd Furman talking about it. Whatever he decides to do means a ton for the NBA. I believe the best thing that can happen to the NBA is Kawhi Leonard stays in Toronto or, even though I don't think it makes sense, goes to the Clippers because then there's 10 or 12 different teams that can win a championship as opposed to only a couple. And parity in the NBA, I think, would be a substantial gift to everybody out there who cares about the NBA. Hour one complete here. We come back in hour two, Wednesday edition of OutKick. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to this ridiculous Colin Kaepernick story, But Nike made some special July 4th shoes. Colin Kaepernick found out about them and said, "Uh uh-uh, Nike, you can't sell these. And Nike listened to him. What did he say? He said they were racist and offensive, Colin Kaepernick did. What actually happened here, I'll tell you next on Fox Sports Radio. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Live from the Geico Outkick Studios. All right, we talked already about the U.S. women. We've talked about Kawhi. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about both throughout this show. But our old friend Colin Kaepernick is back in the news, and he's in the news in an utterly ridiculous fashion. Uh, If you didn't know about this already, uh, Colin Kaepernick was upset with Nike. What was Nike doing? Let me give you a little bit of a background. So if you're not an expert in American history or even that familiar with your grade school days, there was a woman named Betsy Ross who during the American Revolution sewed the first version of the United States flag. And that United States flag that Betsy Ross had had 13 stars to represent the 13 original colonies. If you're not familiar with the concept of a colony, Great Britain was our ruler and we were colonies initially of the British Empire. So the 13 states uh, that ran down the coast of the Atlantic seaboard were 13 colonies. And for a long time that was the way that this uh, that our country was managed as a colonial part of Great Britain of England. And so in the 1770s we went to war to gain our independence. And uh, that war started around 1775 ish, officially took off in 1776 when we declared our independence, and we won our independence officially in 1783. So in 1783, the United States became an official country. In 1776, we de- we de- declared our independence and we fought the seven-year Revolutionary War. And the way we fought during the seven-year Revolutionary War was under what would eventually become the American flag that was designed by Betsy Ross and had 13 stars to represent the 13 original American colonies. All right, there's a little bit of a history lesson for everybody out there. Now, along the way, we have evolved the flag. The current flag today has 50 stars for all 50 states. And interestingly enough, it has 13 stripes. If you look at a flag and you count them, 13 stripes to represent the 13 original American colonies. Okay, so that's the background. As part of the July 4th celebration, and by the way, I hope all of you have a fantastic July 4th to get ready to celebrate uh, American independence, the uh, company of Nike decided they were going to make a tennis shoe, which honored American independence by replicating that Betsy Ross flag on a Nike tennis shoe. They designed the shoes, they sent them off to be made, and they went off to be created by uh, Nike factories overseas. The shoes were made. They were brought back into the United States and the Nike began to ship them out to retailers to put them on sale. Then what happens? Colin Kaepernick becomes aware that these shoes exist and he decides that they are offensive and that they are racist and complains to Nike because of the flag's uh, connection to a time when slavery was legal. Yes, slavery was legal for the first 80 years of the United States existing. It has not been legal, so far as I'm aware, for the next 156 years since Abraham Lincoln ended slavery on January 1st, 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. But Colin Kaepernick decided the shoes were offensive, and Nike pulled them And I don't know what they're going to do with them now. Will they destroy these shoes or will the shoes somehow hit the black market such that Betsy Ross' original American revolutionary hero now becomes revolutionary once more in 2019 over these shoes? The point in a larger context is that this is evidence of sports continuing to partake in what I think is the worst thing that's going on in modern American culture, which is our modern day cancel culture. If Colin Kaepernick doesn't like the shoes that Nike created, you know what he could do? He could not buy them. If you don't like them, you could choose not to buy them. Taking the next step and saying, I don't like this and it shouldn't exist for anyone else is censorship. It is a part of our modern American culture. In this day and age, it is crazy to me that if you don't like something, you don't just choose not to consume it yourself. And this is what I would say across the board. If you don't Guy's radio show, choose not to listen to it. If you don't like someone's television show, choose not to watch it. If you don't like someone's book, don't read it. But, and this is key, don't try and stop other people who do like it from being do that. I don't believe in that decision. I think it runs contrary to everything that exists in our American judicial system. I just don't think it makes sense. And ironically enough, I think it's a fundamentally anti-liberal bent. In other words, our, our country moves, I think, often in circles, not in straight lines. And historically, conservatives have been the people who would have opposed aggressive First Amendment protections. Now we have ended up in this world where liberals are the ones who are advocating against aggressive First Amendment protections. I'm a middle-of-the-road guy, but I get really upset When I see somebody saying, oh, that show shouldn't exist, oh, that book shouldn't exist, oh, that shoe shouldn't exist, if you don't like something, don't buy it. You certainly can enter the marketplace of ideas and argue against it, but you shouldn't have the ability to cancel something and disallow other people who might like it. I think this is a bad decision by Nike. And I'm going to get into the utter hypocrisy and rank hypocrisy of it in a moment. But I put up a poll question. You can always go vote in my poll questions. This one is still up. You can go vote in it. Do you agree with Nike's decision to pull American flag shoes inspired by Betsy Ross's original 13-star Colony flag design because Colin Kaepernick complained the shoes were racist and offensive? 95% of you do not agree with Nike's decision. Now, I'm not claiming that my polls are 100% reflective of the larger American community. But if you can find tens of thousands of other people voting in someone else's poll and they're giving the exact opposite result, I'm happy to give them credence. But when I'm on in all 50 states and when I'm on with people listening all over the world through the Fox Sports Radio app, we got satellite radio, we have one of the largest audiences that exist in the world of sports talk radio. When I am posing this on my Twitter feed, I think I've got a pretty representative audience of the country. Not saying it perfectly approximates the country, but I don't think people are actually offended by this, and I think corporations that continue to kowtow to decisions like this are shooting themselves in the foot in the process. But maybe you want to have your voice heard. You can go vote in this poll. You can find me on Twitter, at Clay Travis. The larger issue, which is ridiculous, which also connects to the world of sports, is this. Nike is right now on their own website selling... A similar Betsy Ross inspired design for the Philadelphia 76ers. You know the city of Philadelphia. You know why they're called the 76ers, because that's when we declared independence. Oh, that whole process of going through and beating the British. That's why the Philadelphia 76ers exist, right? That's why their name exists as it does. They had the 13 stars on their jerseys to represent the 13 original colonies. That jersey is for sale in a variety of different colors and designs on Nike's website. Don't tell Colin Kaepernick. He might feel compelled to make them take that off the website as well. The larger story here, and this remains a larger and important story, is that we have to make sure that the majority's voice is heard and we don't just continue to allow the perpetually offended among us to shriek to faint to grab their pearls and to resist all the time anything that makes them the slightest bit uncomfortable if you don't like something don't consume it it's an easy solution don't demand that no one else is able to consume it either this my friends is an utterly ridiculous world that we have entered into where the Colin Kaepernicks of the world are making decisions for Nike, even if 95% of the American public disagrees with far left-wing activism that perpetually seeks to victimize everyone. So that is my feeling strongly there. Uh, I would encourage you, if you agree with me, go vote in the poll. If you disagree with me, go vote in the poll. This is one of the great things about the way that our country works is Thanks to those men who revolted against Great Britain back in 1776. We live in the freest and the best country in the world. Like most of you, I'm looking forward to celebrating the 4th of July, and I am not going to run and hide because somebody makes me a little bit sad. Up next, we're going to talk with one of my co-hosts on Lock It In. He's Cousin Sal, at Cousin Sal, at the cousin Sal on Twitter. This is Outkick the Coverage on Fox Sports Radio. This is Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis. Welcome back, Geico, Outkick Studios. This is a confident show in general. (laughs) Not a confident show when this guy and I end up on the same side of bets because we've tended to lose a little bit of money. He is Cousin Sal. You can follow him on Twitter at Sal. If you watch Lock It In, which I hope some of you have at least, over the course of this year, I'm out in Los Angeles with him. We are finishing the last week of the year of our show. So let's start there. Yes. We did a... Uh, a like dry run. For people out there who've never really paid attention to television shows or don't have any idea how it works, we did a dry run on the television show uh, back in like August. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had met you for never, right? No. no. Uh, I didn't know Rachel. I might have met Rachel once. I knew Furman a little bit.
4: You didn't know her, but you referred to her the first time I met you as Bonetta, and I was like, oh boy, everyone's familiar with one <laughs> another. This is not going to be good. I know Furman was on your show, and I was like kind of the outcast. I think I remain that way. I don't know. So, <laughs> like so how did this
2: pro- people always wonder how television shows come together and Charlie Dixon and and the yeah. Wit album and the guys that uh And Therese, all of them kind of got together at Fox and they're like, we want to do a gambling show. Uh And I think they started talking to all different ones of us and everything else. When did you start thinking, hey, I might do this? Like, how did that process work for you?
4: I think it's the same in this industry as it is if you want to become a gardener, if you want to uh, get into hedge funds or anything, basically – your employer will go to Brent Musburger first, and he will turn <laughs> it down, and then they'll say, hey, we have to scramble here and fill this third box on a television show. Sal, what are you doing in September? And I happen to be doing nothing, so here I am.
2: Now, one of the challenges about <laughs> television in general, I would say this about radio, because I've done radio where you suddenly get thrown onto a radio show, and it's, it's almost like a marriage that everybody gets to hear every word of. Like, right. you're married. Like, imagine if every time you and your wife got into a disagreement, everybody yeah. was hearing it at every point. And there's a little bit of that with television too, sure. right? Like, because you got the whole cast and crew that come together. We have, and this is not just making it up, gotten mm. along really well. Yeah. Were you nervous, like, because people? You, did you think this guy Clay Travis is going to be an awful human being? Uh, did I, people tell you that?
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm not going to mince words. People told me that, and I was a little worried, and I was like, oh crap. But what are the chances you put four people together and they all get along anyway, right? Like, right. just and the fact that we did, and it and it didn't suck. Yes. it was good. It was entertaining, even when we went off. Uh, off the page a little bit and discuss the topic of the day. But yeah, it all worked out. And uh, that's what I hear from people. It's like, even from after the first three weeks, like, wow, it looks like you guys have known each other for years.
2: Yeah, and we do genuinely have a really good time. And one of the funny yeah. things about the show is most of the time, the people who are on air are the ones that are difficult to handle. Yeah. We actually have had a lot more drama behind the scenes on our our television staff.
4: Yes, exactly. <laughs> which is
2: which is funny in and of itself. Uh, so let, let's dive into this.
4: I have to say real quick, I, I, I thought that there were many stages of how I thought this would work. But um, who, who was the—I'm I'm sorry, I forget his name already—the uh, Supreme Court judge who— justice, and we went in front of the committee. Was Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. So yes. There were different sides of p- people politically, how they were on the show, how people thought maybe you and Rachel butted heads. And during the commercial, I don't want to say you guys were screaming at each other, <laughs> but you guys got it together for the show without a mention of this, like true professionals. I was like, wow, this is really going to work. Here, here is
2: also <laughs> what I, w- I would say, and I think people who listen to the radio show know this, but I'm opinionated, yeah. but if you think that my opinion is full of crap, I totally am fine being called out and told sure. that I'm an idiot, right? Yeah. Because look, I mean, I hear that every day at home. Anybody mm-hmm. who's married probably hears it also. Mm-hmm. I care about my opinions, but I'm not so wedded to them that they define me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that I wish there were, uh, you know, we could get more used to that. I don't know if it's, you're a lawyer too, and I wanna yep. get into that for a sec. Oof. But I think if you are a lawyer at some point, you make arguments and somebody pays you to make an argument. But you're not really committed long term to that argument no. all the time, right? And so sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, uh-huh. and it doesn't really necessarily stick with me in that way. But I want to go. Well, it, as a matter of fact, yeah.
4: to that point, like, oh, so let's say the Celtics are playing the Sixers, and you're like, hey, we have all three of you right now. We're taking the Sixers. Can you, can you, um, can one of you take the Celtics? Like, and I think through legal training, like, yeah, I could bounce the other yes. side. We have to argue both sides, and legal, we have to attack issues on all different from all different perspectives. So that's easier for us.
2: I think honestly, what I do now is just make arguments about sports instead of making arguments about the law right. in some way. And honestly, that's what you do with gambling, right? You look at the data, you try yes. and think about the information that you have, mm-hmm. and make an argument for why you like one side or the other. Right? Uh, do you remember like the first time that you placed a bet?
4: Um, yeah, I think there's a bunch of different things. I used to flip cards in the yard with kids in, like, uh, first grade, and I remember we used to risk five cards. Like, five was the most. You'd say five Larrys, and you'd match up colors, and you'd get to k- take that kid's five cards, or he'd take yours. That wasn't enough for me. I needed 50. I needed to play against the kid who you needed higher would stakes. Risk 50. Higher yeah. stakes. It was always uh, higher stakes. Or um, I had a paper route, and I would uh, travel to Las Vegas every year, and I would stand behind my Aunt Chippy and play video poker, I'd have to be 30 feet behind her she play at a bowling alley because you could play at a porta potty in Vegas they have so many slot machines but yeah I'd be like uh hold the threes drop the queen or something so I had the bug pretty early on
2: so what do you attribute that to like why do you think like is it uh because you don't drink right. I mean not, not that I'm trying to put you on That's blast right. or anything but it's not like some people who have compulsive personalities yeah. you know like they're all in on everything which is why they give you free drinks at the at the casino right exactly. because there are some people who are all in on just like Risk taking lifestyle and everything else. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily characterize you. What do you think it is about gambling that appeals to you?
4: I think it's the numbers. I love, I have a ledger, which is comparable to like a beautiful mind where you just see pages. No one, if I showed you right now, you would not be able to understand a single thing. But it incorporates all my bets for the week and it's pages and pages and pages of handwritten things and I like crossing things off and I like checking them off when they win and crossing them off when they lose. I love that and I love the numbers of it. I really and you think like someone who loves numbers should see that gambling is a losing proposition. Furman loves numbers too, but if you love them enough, you would see that, hey, you have to win fifty-five percent of the time or fifty-four percent of the time. And you don't have as good an edge as everybody has the house does. So why would you do it? But I think numbers is, is what got it, me
2: it is interesting because I'm not a necessarily a numbers guy. Like mm-hmm. I would say, and you guys know this because sometimes I'll try to do, and certainly people who listen to the show, anytime I try to do live math on the show, like right. I fall apart. Um, but you and Furman are really good at math. Like in just yeah. in, in, in your mind, the way that you can break down odds and do the math on it mm-hmm. and everything else. Do you ever think that you have found in your gambling career – a can't-miss proposition where somebody has hung a number and you have immediately recognized, like, this is such a flaw that I can't lose.
4: I, I think they're all like that to me. That's what. That's why I'm stupid. That's, yeah, because that, you the think stupidity. you found, like, the yes, math exactly. angle that makes sense. But that's what it is, isn't it? Isn't that – what? It, like, we're now in week, what, 35 or 36, and I want to beat you guys as much as I did in week one, so right. much so that I will – we had a situation a couple of weeks ago where uh, a Sunday bet carried over to Monday. And if Chase Elliott had won this cockamamie race, Furman would have won the week. If not, I win the week. So I bet $100 on Chase Elliott at 10 to 1. And just to I, try to balance just, out just to the, balance yes. the, the emotional hedge, yes I would have won $1,000, and I'm rooting hard against yes. Chase Elliott. And I could use the $1,000. It yes. hasn't gotten to that point where, oh, $1,000 like, and it does, it's really weird, isn't it? It's all ego, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. And also, it's uh, it's not wanting to admit that you're wrong.
3: Right. Right. Exactly. So
2: much of, and, and that's sometimes when I get the most frustrated, mm-hmm. is when I feel the most confident about a game and I have bet on it, it's like the game is letting me down by yes. not performing as the game should have in my yeah. mind performing. And I don't feel that way about every bet. But it's the ones that I'm the most confident in, mm. you know. Especially, it's an over and under, and one of them is uh, like I'm on one side or the other, and the other one, you know, somebody comes out and they score 21, and I'm on the under in the first quarter, and I'm right. like, this shouldn't be happening, right, right? right? I've watched these teams play all year. You take it personally. Yes, it's yeah. like they are personally insulting me, mm. um, and uh, and I think that's that's honestly what draws a lot of people in. The flip side is, if you're right, you're like, oh, I, I told everybody, sure, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and and I think this plays in well with social media because. In social media, you're either a genius or you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. There's no middle ground. Like they, it, it's like it's funny. I like to go uh, look at reviews sometimes, and somebody either gets a one star, or they get a five star. Mm-hmm. Like most people are probably two, three, and four stars, right? Yeah, sure. Nothing. No, people always want to give the You'll one star or the five star, right? Um, yeah, and, that and that's the same thing with gambling. Like you're yeah. either a genius
4: or an idiot. But I think if, that you will last in this business longer if you can convince yourself that. It's all luck. Even the winning picks are luck. It's hard to say, but let's say I say the Patriots are going to come out slow. Uh, Rams are going to hang ten on them. Brady will throw a pick in the first quarter, but then they come back and win in the fourth. If that goes exactly the way I say it is, it's only all still luck, right? right. It really just is, right? The, the ball can. It's count all a probability. Way. Yes, it's probability. There's weather involved. I know you don't like to say there is, but it's some weird, stupid thing can happen to a yes. referee. A bad call, obviously. We were we were on the uh, wrong we're gonna end get of the bad a call. Yeah, but um, that makes the bad beats easier to handle if you are also thinking that when you win, it's luck as well.
2: You and I lost uh. almost sixty thousand dollars on maybe the most iconically bad call <laughs> yeah. in the in this century, probably in the it world had to of go the that NFL, way too, Right? <laughs> um, yeah, of course. And okay. so, for people out there who have forgotten the Rams and the Saints game, the missed pass interference call, you and I have a money line ticket that we're going to be able to hedge. Uh, if they win because we've got the saints to win the super bowl right and so we would have had a big decision to make do we want to take guaranteed money off the table uh with the patriots going do we want to hedge what do we want yeah, to do we have
4: sold off a little to our friends maybe celebrities want to get involved we, just to be part of this. we knows? could
2: have had a lot of fun with yeah. it instead one of the all time crushing defeats mm-hmm. so uh so then i have to cut you a check for almost thirty thousand dollars to pay off uh, our right. defeat um where did that rank in the annals of
4: bad beats for you it was really bad. It was bad. The the number was bad. The, the fact that we couldn't get an extra two weeks of press out of it sucked. Everything sucked about that. But I've lost betting Hillary Clinton. I bet the individual states. I had the Golden, golden State uh, when they were up 3-1 against Cleveland. I lost that. Uh, I had Lala over um, uh, uh, Moonlight. La La Land was announced as the winner. I lost a lot of money. I mean, if you live bet La La Land after they're announced as a winner, you can't loot, right? Okay, so I had that. I had Joey Chestnut under 64 and a half uh, hot dogs. He ate 62, but then in the press conference afterwards he announced that he ate 72 and they're like okay 72 you win i think we're going to talk to him about that tomorrow i've had a a ton of them and i don't remember the good ones right yeah do you remember 10 bad ones for every good one no i
2: mean you also had i mean it was a crazy one you had the uh the bears on the money line on the double doink field goal against the eagles which is a pretty tough one to lose as well um how did you end up doing what you do
4: um what do i do I don't know. <laughs> like you, you,
2: You, uh, you obviously, oh. like, so you graduate from law school, right?
4: Graduate from law and school. How, I, I only went to law school because I had nothing to do after college. I'm like, know. I don't want to be a lawyer. And then I graduated law school, and my parents like, oh, my son, the lawyer. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. So I did real estate law in New York. For how it's, long? It's the least combative of all the, the uh, facets of law for, like, two years. And then my cousin, Jimmy Kimmel, Got a job on uh, Win Ben Stein's Money as a host. He said, hey, come out here and write for me. You've done uh, comedy sketches on my various radio shows for the last seven years. I think you could figure this out. And I did. And then I went and wrote on The Man Show and Jimmy Kimmel Live. So
2: what was the reaction when you say, so you're practicing law in New York at the time? yep. In New York. New York lawyer, you're a relatively young guy, and you go to tell your parents, hey, I'm moving to California to be a writer. It they was mixed.
4: What? It was mixed. Although they saw the look on my face every time I came home from like doing four real estate closings. Uh, like you a, knew a I, I say this all the I time. Had to get out,
2: yeah. I had what I would call a quarter life crisis where I was practicing law and I was like, I can't believe that I could do this for the next forty years of my right. life, right? That's and, it. And yeah. I was, you know, relatively young guy. I was making, you know, pretty good money, more than my parents had ever made, and like you should be happy. And you're just like, I I do not want to do this. And I would look at the older lawyers yeah. and think, I don't wanna be this, right? right? Like I don't wanna be worked up in responding to, you know, document requests and discovery questions mm-hmm. at this age, right? Yeah. And so I I thought that in and of itself seemed miserable. So did you have kind of that moment too? I was
4: like, you know what? I think the name of the game is to have the fewest what-ifs in life at the end of life, right? So I have to go out. I have to try to make this work. The sports gambling thing, I then met Bill Simmons. He was a writer on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and we did a a Guess the Lines podcast where we would guess the – Spreads for the next week's games, and, and that and I'm just,
2: betting just originated out of your natural conversations that, that you guys would have, absolutely, like and, sitting around in the office the on a table. Monday. We would yeah. try
4: to guess uh, the lines for the following. And
2: now, was he as degenerative a gambler as you were? He's
4: not quite there, but he's a little broader than that. He's he could write uh seventy-five thousand page basketball book i yeah. can't do that about, about basketball but uh he, he's kind of right there with me
2: so uh did you recognize as as gambling was becoming more and more potentially commonplace that this could be something that you would move into more full-time
4: yeah i i did uh, you know I, I i'm curious to think what you said about that like as the years went by I, it's You know, you seem like it's like the marijuana thing. You know, everyone was a stoner. You know, like that connotation. Now, now it's legal, and it's like, hey, stoners are making money selling it. It's okay to smoke it on the street here in California, but. Um, Did you feel the same way? I was like, little by little. And that, obviously, the Supreme Court ruling helped.
2: Yeah, what, yes. I mean, I really did. And that's how I met Furman, um, Mm -hmm. was I started to talk more and more about gambling in my audience, my radio and my writing. But what I loved about it, and I still love about it, is I like the line as the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you're a business, you know, like good at math. I've always been fascinated by the stock market and business. Not in the sense that I'm good at looking at a balance sheet Mm -hmm. and figuring out all of the elements there, But I do think in general, kind of thinking about where business is going, I am utterly fascinated by it. So my entire, you know, adult life, I've been fascinated by the stock market. And for gambling on football, Mm. I love the minute the lines come out and they start to jump, you know, the over-unders when those come out, thinking about where I think the market should be on these games and where they end up and then tracking it. Like the amount of time that I spend going in and looking at the lines moving, Mm -hmm. right? At the notifications that I have on my phone, particularly for football, I started thinking, and what I saw quickly was, as I started to talk about it more and more, you're on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And we live in an era where people want to be on one side or the other. Right. And so unlike, say, fantasy sports, where everybody's fantasy team is different, if you're on the over or the under, you've got a big group of people on you one side or the other, right? right. If you're on one team covering or not covering, you got money line. same thing. Being able to choose a side is big. And so I yeah. knew... Uh, how big it would be and then I got into live betting because I was trying to uh, take advantage of sitting in the press box mm-hmm. and thinking like I'm 30 seconds ahead like can I sometimes get a number oh, that's a little bit better Good. Uh, and so uh, you know for a decade ago and everything else I got really kind of aggressively into that because I like to have an informational asymmetric mm-hmm. advantage and I would be seeing it before theoretically a lot of other people it, it's would. funny
4: because Furman will say he bets numbers we bet games and yeah I think for the most part uh, that's true. Like, you and I could see the Patriots minus one and a half, and maybe it jumps to minus two and a half. Like, I don't give a crap that it jumped. Right. I, this, they're going to kill him. I don't care. Yeah. But over the course of a year, you could see someone like Todd Furman winning on getting a better line over There's probably other reasons, too. He beats us, but yeah, that well, for sure helped. What trying. I
2: told him from the get-go, too, was mm-hmm. I said it, and I told you this, I'm going to bet every big game. Yeah. Because Furman will tap out on betting a lot of big right. games. like yeah. You and I pretty much bet Monday Night Football, Thursday mm-hmm. Night Football, the games that are going to have the biggest audience. Exactly. But I told him at the get-go when he first said, I don't know if I want to do this show, I said, Furman, you're worried about whether or not you're going to win money, and that's great, <laughs> and I want to win money, trust me. Right. The show is going to work if we're entertaining. Like, the wins and losses of the bets will matter less than whether people are enjoying the process. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've done is, you're going to make money this year. Furman's going to make money this year. (laughs) I'm going to lose a lot. But the positive is the show has been entertaining. I didn't
4: think of it like that. I feel like, yeah, he he had the most at stake. Like, you're going to be funny and controversial no matter what. I'm going to be funny no matter what he still needs to win to, to be in good with his people.
2: Yeah, and he, and I was like I'm sure like the show's not going to be ridiculous and then I made fun of it cuz like we're you know hitting him with uh with uh, like mashed potatoes <laughs> on yeah. the yeah, like this cranberry sauce <laughs> on the skit and he's like this is everything I didn't want to do. But Furman has got a little bit of ham in him even though he looks like a robot a lot of the right. time, right? Like exactly. he's a he he has a uh sort of hidden entertaining aspect to his personality that I don't think people like he's funny you know like in an understated way mm-hmm. and i think that surprises people because he seems so buttoned up right, right? well let's
4: it, give ourselves credit for for drawing it drawing out of it out of him
2: 100 yeah. yeah. and obviously rachel has been fantastic and i didn't know she's okay yeah, yeah. i didn't know her at <laughs> all and in fact the first time we met i walked in to uh to charlie dixon's office at fox mm-hmm. right. and i thought you were just working on the show oh, like oh, remember interesting. that remember like i walked in and is that and, right yeah and charlie's <laughs> like oh no this is sal and i was like i've heard sal's a good dude you know like <laughs> But I wouldn't have talked about you in the third person if I had known that 100% okay. that was you. I just, I didn't have any clue that that was... Yeah, that. no,
4: it all worked out, thank God. And now you're out for a week of shows that no one's going to watch. <laughs> I mean, honestly, why are you guys... Go- I mean... I love seeing you guys, but why are you coming out? This is just like, hey, I'm going to New York for uh, in February. I, I want to see Central Park. We have baseball, and thank God we had this NBA uh, d- d- distinct to discuss. Who knew that it was going to fall on a Sunday night? I think we got lucky there. But well, I think also, baseball,
2: July 4th in the afternoon on <laughs> FS1 is one of the most ridiculous uh, the time slots in the And right. we're off July 3rd, which is funny. Like when nobody's, right. no, like everybody's <laughs> kind of planning for everything. Right. But July 4th, literally the one day yeah. where no one is sitting in front of their television in the afternoon. Everybody's out at the pool. Everybody's out at the lake. Everybody's got their picnic and, you know, firework plans and then yeah. we're sitting at home. Uh,
4: yeah. Brent Musburger must have known about the schedule. He push. knew
2: exactly what he, he, was knew he was doing when he decided to bail out. That's right. Uh well tell people how to follow you and I need to get you uh, on the Wins and Losses podcast cuz I yeah. think we could have a really fun I love uh, that
4: you're into pot. You're like, "Oh, I'm a radio guy. I had a podcast that's beneath me now. It's all Wins and Losses podcast." This this new Wins
2: and Losses podcast has been it's a fun, lot of fun. Right? It's kind of it's what I like about it is it's a long-form conversation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you do radio like, I'm looking over at my clock right now. Yeah. I'm constantly cognizant of having to get in and out of breaks right, and right. make sure that I don't run too long with an interview or that I'm not throwing the clock off. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about podcast is... It's a natural conversation where I don't have to look at the clock one Great. time.
4: You, you run your reads whenever you need to. Yeah, yeah
2: it uh, makes total sense. I'm
4: at the cousin Sal on Twitter, and that's it. Locking in for a few. And you got a
2: podcast. I mean, oh yeah, I'm sorry.
4: Re- uh, against all odds, uh, we do it every week. Yeah, with the degenerate trifecta, it's on uh, the Ringer Podcast Network.
2: Yeah, and that's awesome. It's been doing uh, and continues to do outstandingly well. Well, yeah. thanks for hanging out. People can watch us on television on July 4th, and they got absolutely nothing else better to yeah. do. that'll really be a sign that you need to uh, find better <laughs> friends and uh, and spend more time with your family. But you can watch us on television instead. Uh, This is uh, Outkick the Coverage. I'm Clay Travis. He's Cousin Sal at the Cousin Sal on Twitter. When we come back, we'll continue to break down the craziness and zaniness that is NBA free agency and more. This is Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis. Welcome back, Geico Outkick Studios. Uh, We are rolling Wednesday edition Outkick, the coverage. And I think it's crazy that uh, the Warriors have decided to uh, go ahead and retire Kevin Durant's jersey. I mean, this is one of the softest, most ridiculous moves I have ever seen. Look, I'm not arguing that Kevin Durant didn't have a very good three years with the Golden State Warriors. And I'm also not arguing that if Kevin Durant had stayed healthy, I don't think there's any doubt that the Warriors would have been able to go out and win another title. In fact, I think if just Kevin Durant or Klay Thompson had stayed healthy, that the Warriors would be your three-time defending champs. But the idea that Kevin Durant gets his jersey retired seems like an incredible overreaction from the Warriors trying to make Kevin Durant happy because he happened to get injured. If Kevin Durant doesn't get injured and he leaves, I don't think the Warriors would have retired his jersey. And I'm not claiming to be the expert on what jersey should be retired and how you decide to do it and when you decide to do it and all of those aspects. But I do think it's utterly insane for a guy to have been there three years, for him to have already played with the Oklahoma City Thunder, for him to be going to the Brooklyn Nets now, and to believe that suddenly he's going to be worthy of getting his jersey retired in uh, in, at Oracle and in their new arena in San Francisco. Look, I think you could make an argument that Andre Iguodala's jersey could be retired. I think certainly Steph's jersey will be retired. I think Clay will. I think if Draymond Green re-ups and spends the rest of his career with the Golden State Warriors, all of those would be valid decisions based on the amount of success that those teams have had. But I think it is crazy as we stand here and speak here right now trying to contemplate what exactly is going to be the future for Kevin Durant. And I think ultimately why Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City was about trying to get happier. He thought that if he won championships, he would be happier, that it would fulfill something inside of him, and he would feel different because of those championships. And I think what Kevin Durant found out, I think if you sat down and had an interesting conversation with him, what you would find out is he might be more satisfied because now he's a two-time NBA champion. But I don't know necessarily that it changed his overall happiness. And there's a book called The Pursuit of Happiness, I think it is, which obviously is taken from our historic documents. Um, And it argues something interesting. It says, by and large, your happiness doesn't change that much based on external factors. In other words, over time, you might think, hey, if I made $10,000, I would be way happier. But if you make that $10,000 extra salary, over time, your happiness returns and kind of has a baseline level. And so I think about this all the time because I'm kind of fascinated by it. What makes people happy? Um, And I think the answer over and over and over again that I have discovered is it's almost entirely internal. Your happiness level, your happiness quotient, is not based on what you get in the external universe. It's not based on your house. It's not based on your boyfriend or your, or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife. All of those things matter. But most of your happiness comes internally. And I think we live in this artificial era where it's even more magnified on social media, where people are constantly trying to make you feel like their life is perfect, right? Everything about Instagram, everything about Twitter, Everything about Facebook is by and large people putting artificial spins on their own life in order to project happiness to you, even if they're not actually happy themselves. And I think that there is this idea that external reactions generate happiness, that if people like your Twitter post or if people like your Facebook post or if people like your Instagram picture, that somehow that is going to lead to you being happier. And I don't actually think that's true. And I think Kevin Durant is emblematic, and this NBA culture of changing teams is emblematic of this grass-is-always-greener idea. That if you were just playing somewhere else, you'd be happier. That everything in your life would be perfect. And I think, by and large, again, the way you have to assess this is, by and large, I think our happiness almost entirely comes from internal, not external places. And I would just tell you to think about that in the larger context of your own days, of your own lives. As you look at all this NBA free agency, it's great to love your job. It's great to be happy. I hope all of you are having good mornings right now as you listen to this sermon a little bit using Kevin Durant as a hopping off point. But where you work is probably not going to make you happy. And what car you drive is probably not going to make you happy. And what house you live in is probably not going to make you happy if internally you aren't already happy. External sources of happiness almost always fail. It's not just me saying it. It's statistically this almost always happens. And uh, so you tend to overrate the value of external sources of happiness and underrate your own internal sources of happiness. And I think that's a big part of why so many athletes, even though they're making tens of millions of dollars, aren't actually happy because it's not about what happens to them on the field. It's about how they feel inside, and ultimately that dictates so much. This is it for me this week. I'm going to be on Dan Patrick on Thursday and Friday. You will have Jeff Schwartz and Jason Martin sitting in on Outkick for brand new shows on July 4th and July 5th. I hope all of you have fantastic July 4th weekends. Listen to me on Dan Patrick Show. I think we'll have a good time. I'll be back with you guys on Monday. This has been Outkick the Coverage on Fox Sports Radio. Oh, oh.